At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. For many years, many have asked the question, what if God was one of us? Through the incarnation of Jesus, God answered that question, and Jesus became one of us. Every year for centuries, Christians have celebrated the miracle of Jesus' birth. This Christmas season, we're diving into a new series, Emmanuel, God with us. Learning how the arrival of Jesus Christ changes everything. He came to save us, a broken and crooked world, a fallen people. Join us this Christmas as we explore the miracle of Jesus' incarnation and the impact it still has on us. Well, do you think that our community, our Christian community, our our church, if I could put it that way, uh, if you're part of uh, our, our congregation, you're part of uh, membership here at Woodside Bible Church in Plymouth, do you think that our Christian community would make the Grinch hate us? I know that's a funny question, but I'm into Christmas mode now. We've been watching some Christmas shows and movies in the house, and, and I've been thinking about it a lot lately, okay? So think of, like, I've been thinking about the Grinch, especially this last week. Um, some have accused me of being a Grinch from time to time. That's okay. But like, think about him, okay? He's literally green with envy. He sits up in a mountain uh, right above Whoville, above the city, and, and Dr. Seuss has told us his heart is, is two sizes too small. And, and he's just there, and he's grumpy, and he's angry, and he's envious, and he has this problem. The problem is, as Dr. Seuss says in the book, he hated Christmas. He just hates it. But actually, I don't think it's Christmas so much that he hates. It's, it's the people of Whoville that he hates. He hates what's going on. In fact, he, he reflects that, and he says the, the singing and the, the music and the noise, noise, noise. Oh, it just drove him crazy. He actually hated it. These little, this little community of Whoville, these strange little people, and yes, they are strange, and that's totally right. This little strange community that had lots of joy, lots of laughter, lots of love and happiness and unity together, well, he just hated all of it. And they had what, what I would call, Whoville had, uh, they had this Christmas community about them. And the Grinch hated it. And so it makes me wonder. If we have the similar sort of community here among us that they had in Whoville, if we, if we were people that were filled with love and joy and peace and happiness and harmony together, would, would the Grinch hate us as well? You see, I think it's this Christmas community that is a community in many ways that embodies the values and hopes that we think about at Christmas, right? We sing songs like peace on earth. We, we desire that. Or, or joy, joy to the world. We think about Christmas time as a time of, of hope, and goodness, and happiness. If you're a parent with small children, you're singing and hoping for silent nights, right? Like that's just what you want. But a Christmas community, if you will, is one of love and sharing and laughter and joy and happiness and harmony together. And I think it's a Christmas community, if I can call it that, really embodies the virtues and the values that a Christian community should possess. We, the people of God, should be a people of love, deep love, joy together, peace among us, patience Kindness, gentleness, self-control, all of the fruits of the Spirit should be lived out and embodied among us. But more and more, I am concerned that we as a Christian people, as a church, we're embodying the values and virtues of our culture 
more so than we are embodying the virtues and values of Christ. Are we as a community looking more like the world, or are we looking, as we should, more like Christ and being like Christ? I can confidently tell you that every one of us wants a Christmas community. Like, as weird as it seems on the screen, we think about Whoville and we go, I'd like that. And yet the promise is for us, as we become people of Jesus, if we follow and walk with him, we as a Christian community can embody that kind of people and that kind of community, even with the weirdness. So my question for us this morning is, how do we get there? How do we become a Christmas or a Christian a community, a true Christian community? What does it take for us to, to become like that, to be a people that are embodying love and joy and harmony together. Well, the reality is that each one of us must follow Jesus' humble example. The, the answer to this question is not a, a profound one necessarily. It's, it's a rather simple answer, and that is that you and I, if we are to have this kind of Christian Christmas community, if you will, we must follow Jesus' humble example. We must be like Jesus. So this morning as we're here in Philippians 2, this passage is important because Paul is writing to a church that isn't embodying this. There's much that he speaks about that he is excited about and thankful for in the Philippian church. He says in chapter 1, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always and in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is encouraged by this church. He is supported by this church and, and very, very thankful uh, for them and for their, their ministry along with him, for their, even their suffering with him. And yet he realizes there is a deep threat to the harmony and the unity and really the joy of this church. And that threat is no small threat at all either. Now, Paul here in writing this letter, he is trying to head off at the early stages what could become a very divisive and deeply destructive issue within the church. When he writes, he's, he, gets, he goes from general to very specific about who and what he's talking about. And as you get further into the letter, you realize that there are a couple of women in the church in particular that are having a significant disagreement with one another. They are at odds with one another. And so Paul speaks directly to them. He names them and he says, ladies, you need to work this out and get along and come to harmony and unity together. And he even invites and encourages a third person in the church to come alongside them and help them because he's so concerned that their disunity among these two people could spread and impact the entire church and wreck the whole community. So this letter is to address us all. It's to address the whole church. But we have to realize that if there's discord just among a few, it affects everybody. It affects the whole body. So Paul, in writing this letter, is seeking to promote unity and harmony and love together. He wants them and he wants us to follow Jesus' humble example. And that's his instruction for us. Follow his humble example. But in order to do that, Paul has to speak to some things that we need to evaluate. And that's where I want to help us this morning in evaluating our lives. I want us, as it were, to take stock of our lives and, and to think about, are we following Jesus' humble example? And what does that look like? In these three specific areas that, that Paul speaks about, we need to do some self-diagnosis and some self-evaluation to see where we are and where we stand. So first of all, let's, let's start with the first area that we should evaluate in our own hearts and lives together, and that is that we need to consider our position. Consider our position. Now, here in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul gets right to it. 
And he says it this way. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. <clears throat> Here we are evaluating our own assessment of our status. Just in, in looking at ourselves, we're trying to think, where do I rank? Where do I stand among everybody else in, in the church and in the community and the congregation together? How important do I believe myself to be in relationship to others? Well, Paul is talking about our position, or at least our view of our position within our own hearts and minds. Now he says this by negative statement. He says, do not do anything. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now these two terms here, they're really interesting for us and helpful for us, this idea of selfish ambition and conceit are these me-first attitudes. They're the kind of competitive, I'm the best, I'm the greatest person, the smartest one in the room, I'm the VIP, the whole universe should just like revolve and center around me. It's that kind of attitude and thinking that can plague our lives today. Specifically, selfish ambition is this hostile, selfish, me-first kind of thinking. It's a climbing a ladder with putting people underneath you step by step, rung by rung, on your way to the pinnacle and to the top, just pursuing greatness for yourself at the expense of everyone else. Conceit, the other term that he uses here, is this elevated and exaggerated self-evaluation. We think we're a big deal. We think other people should think we're a big deal. We want everyone to be afraid of how much they love us, if I can put it that way. We believe ourselves to be the most important, the smartest, and the greatest in the room. And when we have these mindsets, they direct and shape everything about our lives. We're the center of the universe. Me first. It's an attitude of self-promotion. And so we live thinking that everything we should do should be for our advancement to get ahead Everything we should do should be so that we move up and we move forward and we get advanced in the world. But the reality is that kind of mentality, that me first attitude, it doesn't foster love. It doesn't promote or produce any harmony or unity or joy. In fact, it does the very opposite. It divides, it breaks down, it destroys So Paul says, don't do anything. Don't let your actions be dictated by this view of you being the most important person in the world or the main character in life. Instead, he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, here's this answer to this me-first, selfish ambition and vain conceit that we can have, this position that we can have. The answer is humility. In humility... Consider or count others more important than more significant than yourselves. How hard is that? Like to, to, to say, wait a second, I'm not to put myself first. I'm not to, to run ahead and make myself the most important person in the room or the most important person in the world. I'm, I'm to elevate and advance and to consider others more significant than me. How difficult is that, to look in the eyes of other human beings in your life, other human beings in the church or in your neighborhood or your community, and to see these others that you come in contact with as having a higher ranking and to have more significance than you do yourself. And that's the challenge of humility, because humility is a lowering. It's a descending of our own state and our own status in relationship to others. It's it's going and getting on our knees Lowering ourselves before others. And that's how you build unity and love. 
we're, we're told today that you just build unity by uh, grabbing a group of people around a shared uh, passion, a shared affinity together. So whether it's uh, the football team, the Lions, or, or whether it's a political entity or party, or, or whether it's a regional thing, whatever it is, you find something that everybody can agree on, everybody can be excited about, and you all put your head in together and you say, yes, we're excited and unified around that. But unity isn't found in finding one thing to all get excited about. Unity is found in a humiliation of our lives and deference to one another. This is how you build unity in love. To, to elaborate more, Paul says in verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. That is, don't be just so focused on your life and your affairs and your interests that you disregard, you ignore, you have no capacity or room for the interests and needs and concerns of someone else. Humility, once again, says, let me look after you even before I look after myself. Let me take care of your life, your needs, your interest before I look at my own. Let me get in on what you're doing before I take care of what I am. But that's not our age, right? We live in an age of self-promotion and self-evaluation. Some have called it, and I love this term, main character syndrome. I think you see it a lot on social media these days. Where people are just like jumping in the middle of some normal thing, doing some goofy dance, and all of a sudden they're the main character in the thing, right? It's all about them. We think we're the main characters of the universe, and so everything floats around us. Yet if we're to have the character of Christ... If we're to experience true Christian community of harmony and love and unity together, we have to humble and lower ourselves. This is the kind of humility that Paul speaks about here. And he says that as a default position, as a, as a main setting in our lives, we have to be asking the question, what can I do to serve others first? What can I do today to put someone else ahead of me? What can, I, what can I do today? How can I live in such a way as to put the kingdom of God before myself? It's an important position for us to think about. Maybe this week it would be wise for you to take stock of who you can serve in your life, who you can put before your own interest. You can back up. You can lower yourself. You can take a step down and put the interests and needs of someone else above your own. To do a, a right evaluation of, of our hearts here and of our lives, we have to, first of all, assess and consider, uh, consider our position. Where do we stand? Are we first in the world? Or are we willing to come down to serve others? This is where true harmony and unity is found. Secondly, we must evaluate, if we're going to follow Jesus' humble example, we must evaluate and consider our mindset. Consider our mindset. How are we thinking about the world? What is the filter or perspective through which we look at the world? One of the big concerns that many talked about many years ago was a concern for someone's self-esteem. So, so if a child did something bad in school or acted in some way that was harmful towards others, that was often excused or at least explained maybe, the better way of saying it, as a person having, that child having really low self-esteem. And so what we all need to do is we need to tell that kid it's okay, they're great, and, you know, puff them up and, and help magnify their self-esteem. And if they have a high self-esteem, they won't do bad things. They won't hurt other people. But that's put us in the position I think we're in today. Everybody thinks too highly of themselves. We think we're the best, we're the greatest. Or there's still those that think too low of themselves. It's just The problem is we're really thinking about ourselves way too much. 
And I like how Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis have suggested the issue isn't thinking too highly of oneself or too lowly of oneself. The issue or the need for us is to think less about ourselves altogether. And I'll confess that feels impossible because I'm always thinking about me. Maybe you are too. But Paul tells us to foster love and unity and togetherness, we have to take on a new mindset. He says this in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. As a community together, this is to be your perspective. This is to be your mindset. This is how you are to filter and to perceive one another and the world around you. And this mindset, he says, is yours in, G- in Christ Jesus. Now, there's some debate and discussion among translators and interpreters about how to explain this verse. One approach is what I'll call the possessive approach. The possessive approach emphasizes what is already true of us in Christ. That's the approach the English Standard Version, what I'm reading from here, takes. You already have this mindset in you. This mindset is already yours in Christ Jesus. What that means is, is if we are in Christ, if we belong to him, and we're adopted into his family, he's already gifted you this mindset, this, this position and this posture of humility. It's yours in Christ because what is true of Christ is true of you. And what belongs to Christ also belongs to you. And so what we need to do, because we already possess this mindset, is grow into it. Jesus is the embodiment of humility. And we, as followers of his, can become more and more humble as he was humble. The resources are already there at our disposal to be humble this way, to have this mindset because it's already yours. That's one approach. The other approach, though, is what I'll call the imitation approach. The Christian Standard Bible translates it this way in verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ. Now, this approach encourages us to make effort to think and to live as Jesus did. In this approach, we're encouraged to adopt and to imitate the attitude of Jesus Christ, to take it on, to exert effort. So we have to reframe our thinking. We have to look carefully at our attitudes and our actions and make sure that we're matching up to Jesus' attitude. This is what I'll call the old uh, what would Jesus do approach. So when you walk into a meeting and you're ready to be, you know, the best and the greatest and the smartest in the room, to to take on the mindset of Christ says, no, I need to lay back. I need to, to listen up and let others express their opinions and voices. I need to consider others before myself. And instead of like putting ourselves at the center of the universe and thinking everybody should pay attention to me, we need to give deference and care for others. Instead of making our agendas the most important things, we need to make the agendas and the needs of others more important. And we need to constantly, to to take up this attitude means to imitate Jesus. Constantly, step by step, day by day, moment by moment, we're thinking and asking ourselves, do I have the mindset or the attitude of Jesus? Now, which is it? I say it's both. I'm not going to pit these two approaches against each other. In fact, I think we need both. For the Christian, it is true. If you are in Christ, you have already been gifted the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus won full humility for us when he came and lived perfectly on our behalf. So when you and I stand before the Father, he perceives us as already possessing the perfect humility of Jesus Christ. But we also know that we need to exert effort. We need to pursue humility as a way of life. My sin nature still wants to be king and still wants to be the most important person in the world. And so I constantly have to exert the effort, and you do as well, to say, let me die to myself. Let me take a step back. May Christ increase and I decrease. 
We need to st stop thinking so much about ourselves and start thinking more and more about others. The grace of Christ is not opposed to our exerting effort to grow in Christ. It's only opposed to our trying to earn the grace of Christ. One Welsh preacher in the 20th century, probably one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote about someone who came to see him. He wrote this and he said, a friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? He felt there was pride in him and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think that I had some patent remedy and could tell him, do this, that, and the other, and you will be humble. But I said, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you how to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because you, I know you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that's to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You, you cannot be anything else when you see him. That's the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look at Christ. You realize who he is and what he has done, and you are humbled. That's how we get the mindset of Christ. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for us. And in seeing who he is and what he's done for us, we cannot be, if we perceive him rightly, we cannot but help be humbled by his grace. So here's a simple litmus test for you to use to evaluate yourself and your mindset. Are your actions and attitudes more about me, yourself, or we, others? That is, are, are you doing things that are more inclined to benefit you, or me and mine, if you just want to bring in your, your, your small little tribe with you, or are your actions and lifestyle lived in such a way that considers the larger community and the family of God? The impossibility of living with harmony and unity and love is that when we have the mindset of me, we cannot live for we. Christians that are living to foster love and unity are often asking and evaluating themselves in light of how their actions and decisions impact the community together rather than just them as individuals. And this falls into every sphere of our lives. When we think about our jobs and our vocation, are we thinking about just me and how this benefits me and my life? Or are we thinking about we? How does what I do in my vocation serve and benefit the greater community and the whole? When we think about our income and spending our money, do we think about me and what only benefits us and improves our lives? Or do we think about we and what helps serve and benefit the community, even the church community together? When we consider our leisure time and how we spend that, do we consider just me and what makes me feel good and gives me a great delight? Or do we think about what we can do with our time to benefit we, the whole, the community together? All of it falls into this category. Is it me or is it we? Having the mindset of Christ is having a mindset of considering others, a mindset of humility, of humble service, the mindset of Jesus Christ himself. So first of all, we must consider our position. Where do we rank? The lower we go, the greater we're growing in humility. We must consider our mindset. Are we filtering and thinking about the world in the way that Christ is, or are we just looking at ourselves and thinking only about our interests and our lives? There's a third area of our lives that we have to evaluate if we're going to follow Jesus' humble example for us. And that is to actually consider our example, to consider our example. Now, I don't mean consider the example that you are leaving or the example that you are giving to the world. 
I mean to consider the example that you are actually yourself following. Because the truth is, somebody, somebody else is actually a pace setter for your life. There, there is someone else who is setting the pace, who is dictating the course, who is giving you an example to follow. We are all imitators. We're all learning and following from someone else's own example. And so the question is, who is your example? Who is actually setting the pace for the way that you live your life, for your heart, for your values? Who could that be? Who are you patterning your life after? And verses 6 through 11 here of this text are, are poetic. They're possibly one of the earliest Christian hymns about Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful text. We're going to get our eyes on Christ and we're going to grow on humility. This is where Paul is really helpful because he helps us see and consider who Jesus is and what he has done. This little hymn, if you will, helps us sing about the humble actions of Christ on our behalf. There is a descending trajectory of Jesus Christ for us. He embodies humility in the way that he came and served and lived for us. The scripture says in verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now I'll just zoom in on verses 6 through 8, this descending trajectory of Christ for us. The word form here is used three times in these three verses, and they help illustrate the trajectory of Jesus. The, form here, the word form here means, uh, and has with it the meaning, that which truly characterizes a given reality. To be the form of something means that you characterize or you display, you are essential to that given reality. So in verse 6, we start with Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, Jesus is characterized by what is essential to being God. That is a way of saying Jesus himself is fully God. He is completely and totally divine. He's not 50% God. He's not 30% God and 70% human. He is fully God. And this is where Paul starts for us. Jesus, being in the form of God, being fully God, he didn't inhabit the values of our age or our world of self-promotion and selfish ambition. No, instead, he was unselfish. He was open-handed. He, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This idea of being grasped is something that you hold with closed fists. You're not going to let it up. You're not going to give it away. No one can take it from you. But he, Jesus, being God, didn't think of his status as God as something that he should hold with closed hands. No, he, he was open-handed. He emptied himself, verse 7 says, by taking the form of a servant. Jesus emptied himself of his high status and his position as God. Now, that doesn't mean that he emptied himself of being God. Jesus in no way declined in any way in being fully God. But he gave up his status he gave up his position, he gave up his glory, and he took up the form. This is the second time the word is used. He took up the form of a servant. He became characterized 
by being a slave. That which is essential to being a servant, Jesus took upon himself. The almighty, eternal, all-powerful, glorious Son of God who made all things and in whom all things hold together and the one who will inherit all things became a servant. He came to serve us. This is what Jesus said about himself. He said, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, now just consider that. The glorious king of the universe, the one who is fully and truly God, the one who should be served, should be glorified, should be worshipped in every way, comes and he serves. He becomes humble for us. He takes on human form, being born in the likeness of men and being found, here's verse 8 and the third term, time the, the term form is used, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus served, and the way that he served is becoming a human being and living and dying for us. Born in the likeness of men, found in human form. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. That's the incarnation, that God became man. The immortal took on mortality. Spirit became flesh. The infinite became finite. Jesus Christ became fully human, just as you and I are, yet without sin. And he came for you and me. Becoming, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. This is the way his, his humility demonstrated itself. He's the one who should command all the, the world and the universe to do his will. And yet he was the one who became obedient, even to the point of death and death on a cross. Christ submitted himself to his Father's will and lived perfectly, lived righteous life and obedient to the point of death. And not just any death, but the one form of death that held a curse over it, death on a cross. One commentator says that the cross was deemed an especially appropriate death for rebels and slaves because it was designed not just to kill but also to shame. The victim was stripped down to no or few clothes and typically nailed to the cross through the ankles or wrists, sometimes fastened with ropes. Death would come by suffocation when the victim could no longer lift himself to draw breath. This excruciating pain and shame was common to all who were crucified. But Jesus' suffering on the cross was unparalleled and unequaled because he bore the terrible curse of sin and suffered the awful wrath of God as an atoning substitute and sacrifice. Friends, this is the good news, the gospel for us. It's the message of divine humility. That God, the Son of God, did not consider it beneath himself to become human to suffer and to die in our place for our sins. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stooped down to serve us. Now, this is who he is and this is what he's done. He stooped down to die in our place when we deserve death, to take the curse that we deserve. Do you believe him? Are you trusting him? Is Jesus the example that you are following? You see, we are full, we, we as a world today, we are full of people that we are seeking to imitate and to model. 
we're always imitating someone. And so who is it that you are imitating? Who is it that you're following? I think about our public discourse and the way we talk about other human beings, even on our social media, even on, uh, in our world today. Why is it so toxic and angry? Are we following the example of Jesus with our speech? Why are we so angry and bent on getting our own way at the expense of others? Are we following the example of Jesus? Why are we so graceless and lacking compassion to those who are suffering and needy while at the same time demanding that our own rights and privileges are upheld? Are we following the example of Jesus? Why do we hate and divide and demonize and seek to cancel those that we disagree with or disagree with us or that just don't like us or we don't like? Are we following the example of Jesus? To be humble, we have to follow Jesus' example. We must imitate him. So, so to, to close this, I want to give us three words of, of application, three words of insight on how to follow his example. They're right here in the text. First of all, empty. Jesus emptied himself. That means that we pour out our pride, our own self-importance. We pour out our own me-first thoughts that live in our hearts and our minds. To empty means that we lose. Have you taken a loss lately? We lose status. We lose wealth. We lose position. We lose approval. And that's what it means to be humble, to empty ourselves. Secondly, to serve. We live to benefit, to care for, to help or assist or bless or elevate others. Jesus served us. And so to be humble means we must serve others. We must serve one another. Can you serve others? Do you have a lifestyle and a habit of serving others in your life? Or is your life built around you being served? The third word is obey. We follow the commands and instructions of another. Jesus, our king, obeyed. That's the point of his humility. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He obeyed his father. When we go rogue, we act in self-interest and arrogance. But obeying means trusting God, doing what he has commanded us to do, to love others, to serve and to care for others, even at great cost to ourselves. This is how we become humble. So we have to evaluate our position, our mindset, and our example. If we'll take the position of Christ, of humility, if we'll take the mindset of Christ, of humility, if we'll follow the example of Christ and be humble, then we'll find a community of love and unity and harmony and joy. I think we'll find ourselves become a truly Christmas community. And the world will be amazed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son for us. Jesus, thank you for coming on our behalf, suffering and dying in our place, living perfectly for us so that we might be rescued by you and saved by your victory, but also we might have a perfect example to follow. As the Spirit of God, help us to be humble people. Help us to reject the values of this world that seek self-interest and self-promotion. and Help us to take up the values of our Savior, to be people that empty ourselves, that serve and then obey you so that Christ would be glorified. We thank you for your grace and for your love for us. Spirit of God, do this in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.